I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We've uh, had the privilege these past few weeks uh, to meditate and to study some of the uh, prophecies before Jesus as well as the prophecies right when he was born uh, and the events surrounding his birth. And I'd like to take a little bit, you know, zoom back a little bit and uh, get a wider frame on it uh, as, we, as we look at the purpose of Jesus coming to the planet. You know, it's interesting, uh, both in the book of John and the book of 1 John, he talks about Jesus not being born, but Jesus being manifest. Now, Jesus had to be born, right? I mean, th- that's the story we've been telling. <laughs> and this is a story that we, we see in the scripture. And it's certainly what, what, uh, what we see around nativity. He, ha- he was born, born of a virgin. Uh, that's absolutely true. However, uh, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. Jesus didn't begin with the nativity. That's when he was uh, first that's when he came, became flesh. That's when he came into the planet. But he has existed before the beginning of time. The Bible says that all things that were created were created through him, by him, and for him. So everything that's in existence was created through him. He was in the beginning. The Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we celebrate in Christmas, we celebrate the Word became flesh. Jesus has existed before the planet existed, before the universe existed, Jesus existed. He existed as the word of God. He was, he's in God. He was God. And so when he became flesh, we celebrate that. We call it the advent, which advent just means the coming. The first advent, the coming of our God, Emmanuel, to the earth, the coming of Jesus. And of course, we look forward to the second advent. There are two hinge points of history that all of history hangs upon. The number one is the, is the life of Jesus Christ. So the coming of Jesus, more than that, the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of history led up to that, and all of history looks back to that. But there is another point. There is another, there's another event in history which is, is huge, and all of history hangs on this as well, and that's the second coming of Jesus. And as believers, we are told over and over, don't forget, I'm coming back. Don't forget, I came, but I'm coming again. You know, the Bible tells us that he wants us to be people that love his appearing. He wants us to be people that anxiously await his appearing. Because that's not just going to be a a fun ride. You know, I don't know if you guys like those rides where you just drop really fast and your, your stomach stays up in your brain and, you know, your, your feet are, you know, seem like they're 10 feet below you. But uh, I don't think the rapture is going to be like that. Now, maybe some of you, we, all, we might have some different views on uh, eschatology and how, the, how it all is going to happen, but we do know Jesus is coming back, right? So he's coming back for his church. He's coming back for his people and he is coming back to reign as well. Those are two different events in the scripture. They're not the same thing. And so there will be a time when Jesus comes again. We're supposed to be anxious for that. Now we, the problem is you live long enough, you have a couple of quacks that think they've done the math differently than everybody else did the math. 
And they figured out the date, the time, and probably the minute that Jesus is coming back. They end up standing in Times Square looking like an idiot while everybody's saying, where's your God now? I admire their tenacity, but, you know, Jesus says, I'm coming at a time you don't know. No man knows the day nor the hour. I'm sure we know the season. I'm sure we can look at the signs as Jesus instructed us to do. Look at the signs. Look at Israel. Look at this. Look at that. And we can see his time is coming soon. I can't tell you it's May 21st. I can't tell you it's June the 9th. I can only tell you it's soon. And soon to God may be different than soon to me. Peter says, in the last days, many people are going to scoff. You met some scoffers lately? Boy, Twitter brings them out in droves. Scoffers, he says, are going to rise. And here's what they're going to say. Where is the promise of his coming? Because people, Peter says that people are going to say, you guys have been talking about Jesus coming back since, since our forefathers. Where is he? And Peter says this, he says, don't think that God is slow concerning his promises. For a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. May I say to you, that is not a calculation that you need to use and say, okay, so if a thousand years is equal to a day. No, he says a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. That's code for time is not an issue with God. That's not your heaven to earth conversion calculator. As some people have taken it to be. Okay, so a day is like exactly a thousand years. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. You've missed the entire point. The entire point is God lives outside of time. So to him, a thousand years goes like that. Or a day could stretch out like a thousand years. That's how he wants it to be. But he's not slow. And Peter says he's not slow. He's patient. You see the difference? The difference is, are you focused on you or are you focused on all those people around you that need Jesus? Because if you're focused on you, you just want to get out of here. But if you're focused on that, you have the heart that Jesus has. You say, he's not slow, he's patient, for he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and the knowledge of eternal life. This is the hope. So, we got two events. We've got Jesus coming to earth, living and dying for us and being risen again for us. Then we've got Jesus coming again. Believers, your whole life has to do with those two events. Those are the big two. Now you can say, well, what about Adam? Yeah, Adam, Adam played a big part. But Jesus came as the second Adam to undo what Adam did wrong. And I thank God that we get to stand on this side of the cross looking uh, back and saying, Jesus did that for me. So in 1 John um, he tells us twice in verse John 3, in two different times, he tells us why Jesus came. Why Jesus was, in his words, manifest. The word manifest being just made, made known, revealed. He says this in 1 John 3. This is the reason for Christmas. This is the reason for the advent of Jesus. In verse 1, he says, see How great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Remember in John 1, when he's talking about the coming of Jesus, he says, and to those that believed in him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. He says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Not someday, 
We are now children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Listen to that. He says, everybody that has a hope that someday I'm going to look exactly like him. Now, now we know he, in this same book, he says, as he is, so are we in this world, right? We know that we have his spirit living inside of us, yet we're aware that I'm not fully there yet. I'm aware, and maybe you're not as aware, maybe your spouse makes you more aware, but I'm aware that I'm not where I need to be, I'm not finished, I'm not done, there are flaws in my character. My wife doesn't do that because she's special and she's nice, but maybe yours does. There are, there are things about me that I'm not completely satisfied with yet. There are parts of my life that I want to be more like Jesus that I recognize I'm still not there yet, but I'm getting there, and his grace in me is not in vain. And his spirit in me is not inactive. He's working in me. He's changing me. He's, he's changing me to look like him. And so that's, that's exciting. So he says, everyone who has this hope, what's your hope? My hope is, now hope is not like we say hope. Like we say, you know, I hope we win the lottery. I hope you didn't say that. But people say that. I hope I win the lottery. I hope the Oilers win, which is, you know. <laughs> The lottery might be a better shot, but, but you might say that's hope. That's not hope. That's a wish, right? That's a far out wish. Hope, biblical hope. The Bible says in Hebrews, our hope that we have in Jesus is an anchor for our soul, and it enters into the very throne of God. The hope that the Bible talks about is not a wish thrown out there. It's not a Hail Mary pass. The hope that the Bible talks about is is a sure thing. It's an earnest expectation. Because the Scripture says, hope, whoever hopes in him will not be disappointed. This hope does not disappoint. So the hope that we have in Jesus is not a, it's not I hope, like I hope, I hope, I hope. It's, it's hope, it's, it's, it's expecting, it's, it's going to happen. So the hope that we have is that we're looking forward. Here's our earnest expectation is that there will be a day when we look at Jesus face to face and we are changed in his likeness. The Bible tells us that in that day, we trade our old body for a new body. That there is this body as worn down, as broken as it is, as flawed as it is, as full of the curse as it still is. Now, I know you say, well, the curse has no place in my body. and Amen, I agree with you. What I'm saying is our bodies by nature get older. I don't see anybody in the room that still, you know, is, is 70 years old and looks like they're 20 without a massive amount of work being done. Because our bodies in this present age will get old and will eventually die. All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flowers of the field. It will fade away. So the, our bodies are 
growing old. They're, they're, they're going to die eventually if, unless Jesus comes first. Now, of course, we know that uh, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, and it's affecting your physical body. I, I, and the same healer that walked the, the shores of Galilee walks the earth today, and, and his healing power is present and able to heal. He renews our youth like the eagle. I believe this. And yet you're not built to live on the planet forever, right? So there will be a day when we turn this body in and your last elements of sinful nature will be exchanged for a glorious body. That's going to be good, isn't it? The Bible calls that the fullness of our adoption. So you've already been adopted. And it's a good adoption. You got a good dad. I mean, this is way better than Annie. This is way better than any story. You have got a dad that loves you. You've got a family that loves you. You've got a father that gave everything for you. We've been adopted in the family of God. And yet the scripture still says we're looking forward to the completion of our adoption. And that's when, our, that's when we turn these bodies in and we look like him. He says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him. Where's your hope fixed on? It's on him. Purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. See, it doesn't say purifies himself as Jesus is purifying himself because Jesus is pure. Doesn't need to get purer. But if you have your hope fixed on Jesus and you have hope that someday I am going to look exactly like him. I'm looking forward to that day. But even now in this life, in this day, I'm changing to be more like him. Everybody who has this hope fixed on Jesus, not fixed on you, not fixed on your support group, not fixed on your goodness, but fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. And then it says in verse 4, everyone, this seems like it comes out of nowhere. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, listen to that. See, we're talking about why did Jesus come? He says, you know, he appeared. So what's he talking about when he appeared? He's talking about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Jesus has always been, but there was a time when he appeared. That's what we celebrate Christmas. That's that's what all this stuff's about. Jesus appearing. We know he appeared. Why did he appear? To take away sins. That is a beautiful verse. Jesus came to take away sins in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard the term scapegoat. Maybe you've heard it in sports. Maybe you've heard it in politics. Maybe you've heard it in so many different things. But scapegoat is a biblical term. Because in the Old Testament, there would be a goat that the people would come and the priest would come and lay his hands on that goat. And the sins of the people would be transferred to the goat. And that goat would be brought outside of the camp and given over, uh, the scripture says to Azazel, that there was to, to the devil, to this, to this evil spirit, just given over, would be sometimes thrown off a cliff or it would be driven outside the camp, never to come back again. And so in that sense, the sins of the people were transferred outside the camp and they would be purified again for another year. The Bible tells us that Jesus was our sacrifice and that in Hebrews, it tells us that he took our sins outside of the camp. He was crucified outside the city walls for us. 
and says, therefore, let's go outside of the camp and meet him there, bearing his reproach. So Jesus did that for us. He took away the sins, but not in the Old Testament. It was a temporary fix. When Jesus did it, it was permanent. The Bible tells us that he removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And you can keep flying east. You'll never start flying west. That's how far he removed your sin. Never to be reunited. Never to find each other again. He removed your sin. It's not coming up again. It's not coming up on judgment day. It's not coming up tomorrow. Your sin has been removed. It's under the blood of Jesus. It's cast in the sea of forgetfulness. It's gone. It's not covered. It's gone. It's not overlooked. It's not swept under the rug. Completely gone. He appeared in order to take away sins. In him, there is no sin. Now, before that, he said that, that, that anyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Now, what does he mean by practices sin? You've got to remember who he's writing to. He's writing to believers, but he's writing to believers who've been taught more than one thing. And, and so you see throughout 1 John, he's like talking about how you know who false teachers are, how you know who the right ones are. They're getting confused. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of false teachers that have arisen. And the false ones, many of them come from a branch of belief called Gnosticism, that they believed uh, that there was a higher secret wisdom. One of the things they believed was something we call aestheticism, which means that, uh, that, that basically... You know, there's a, there's a wide separation between body and spirit. Many of them didn't even believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh, that, that it was just a spirit and that some body got crucified, but not Jesus. Jesus was a spirit. So they, they believe in this separation. So their idea was your spirit's always good. Your flesh is always bad. You're going to sin, but it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want with your body. So they said things like the body is for eating. It's for drinking. It's for just go out and have fun with it. That's what it's for. But he says, and the scripture teaches us, that because we've been bought with a price, he also purchased our body. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. It says that your body's been bought with a price, that that we glorify God in our bodies. See, Jesus didn't just buy your spirit. He bought the whole package. And he redeemed you so that your, your spirit would be made new and born again in an instant. But your body's being changed. Your fleshly nature is being changed. Your habits are changing. All of it's changing. So you had a group of false teachers that were saying it doesn't matter what you do. And they, practicing sin does not mean you slipped up. Practicing sin does not mean you made a mistake. Practicing sin is not talking about somebody who stumbles. Practicing sin is somebody who says, I know you don't like this, but I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. That's called practicing sin. It, habitual, willful, it's, it's, you know you're rebelling against God, yet you do it anyways, and you continue to do it, and you're not ashamed of it. This, he says, this is how you know who's the right teachers and who the wrong ones are. Look at these guys' lives. He says, these guys aren't of God. You can tell, just look at them. Look at them. They're rebels. We all started out as rebels. And in many ways, we still rebel. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need the blood of Jesus. You know, 1 John 2, right before this, he says, He says, my little children, I I write to you so that you may not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So when we do sin, you have an advocate. You have somebody on your side. You have Jesus. 
your intercessor, your mediator, your high priest. You know, some people have read the book of 1 John and said, I'm more confused than I ever was. I don't know if I'm saved or not. If that's your result, you're reading it wrong. Because 1 John says, I'm writing this to you so that you know you have eternal life. You're missing something. If it's confusing you, you're reading it wrong. Because he says, the reason I'm writing this letter is that you be convinced that you have eternal life. Not based on what you're doing, but based on what Jesus did. It says, he came, he appeared to take away our sins. He goes on to say later that we have confidence in the day of judgment. He says, I want you to have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we also in this world. So when we stand before God in the day of judgment, we don't stand as rebels anymore. We don't stand as dirty people. We stand as Jesus stands, clean and holy and pure. But he says, you can know the false teachers because these are the guys whose life is a life of practicing lawlessness and practicing sin. They're committed to it. They're habitual. They're not even ashamed of it. He says this, no one who abides in him sins. It's <laughs> a tough verse. Because if you read that, just like it sounds sometimes, you might think, man, if I tell one lie, I, I guess I'm not saved. Well, he's saying no one abides in him sins. The, word, the Greek word sin here, sins, is, is in a tense, which means continual over and over. It's, it's in a present continuous sense, which means it's not just once. It's not just a mistake. It is a continual habitual, this is my life. I do this and this is the way I live. He says no one who abides in him does this stuff. No one who sins, in other words, who has stayed in their sin and just refuses to repent of it, refuses to, to quit it, just keeps on going. He says, none of these people have seen him or know him. Now, remember, why is he writing this? Because there are people that are teaching them, it doesn't matter what you do. There are people that are teaching them, let's go on and just do whatever feels good. Your spirit's your spirit, your body's your body, and your body is for pleasure. So let's just do whatever feels good to the body. He says, those guys are fake, and here's how you know. Look at them. They don't know God. If they knew God, do you think they'd be living like that? He says in verse 7, little children, see, here's how we know. He's talking about those teachers. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Now, when we say practice, we're not talking about trying and trying so you can get better. We're talking about practicing as in living it out. Dr. Deploy here it, it practices medicine. That doesn't mean he's, he's, he's working on getting good at it and he's going to use you as his guinea pig. That's not what practicing means. Practicing means like practical, it's something you do. It's not just something you know, it's something you do. So righteousness is your first and foremost, it's your state of being. You are righteous by the blood of Jesus, not by your work, but by his work, I'm righteous. But because of his work, because of my state of righteousness, I practice righteousness. I live my righteousness out. Because you are a human, you tend to look and act like a human. Dogs, because they're dogs, they do dog things. There are certain things that dogs do. They didn't have to learn from another dog. They just do. Birds fly because they're birds. You practice righteousness because you are righteous. 
It says the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he, Jesus, is righteous. In verse 8, he says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. Now listen to this. This is the second time he's going to say, this is why the Son of God appeared. First of all, he says the Son of God came to take away sins. He bore our sins. He bore our punishment. He bore our penalty. Now he says it again. He's going to put a bit bit of a different angle on it. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. I love that. That's Christmas that I can get behind. (laughs) That's a Christmas message I can really shout. Jesus came. There's a little baby. The story's not about a baby. It's about Jesus appearing for this reason to destroy, demolish, completely render powerless the works of the devil. He came to tear the devil's kingdom apart. He came to tear his work apart. And in this context, he's talking about the devil's work, not just in the broad sense, but in your life, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the yoke of bondage that has kept you. He came to destroy the, the, the things that have, have, have kept you from fully running your race and following him. He came to smash the yoke. He came to break the chains. For this, per, this is why Jesus appeared. This is why Christmas happened. So that he could take away sins and so that he could destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. No one who is born of God practices sin because the seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. This doesn't mean, (laughs) once again, I want to say this and I want to say it very clear. This does not mean the next time you tell a lie, you go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not saved. This is not talking about a believer stumbling. This is not talking about somebody falling back into old habits. This is talking about someone who habitually, continually, willfully lives in rebellion against God. So that's the evidence in their life. That's the fruit of their life, and that's not good fruit. Now, I know in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about people. There are some people who will do very little in their life for God. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about a group of people that build a foundation that's other than Jesus Christ. And it says on that day when they stand before him and give an account for their works, their works will burn up or will have already burned up. And it says they themselves will be saved as though through fire. What does that tell you? That tells me that there are a group of people that as much as I'd like to believe it's just real, always really obvious, it's black and white, that you're either 100% for Jesus or you're 100% for the devil, that there are some people that it's not as obvious with. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 3, there are some people who stand before Jesus and he goes, you did nothing. You did nothing which stood the test of time. You did nothing which was built on the foundation of me. And yet they themselves will be saved as though through fire, which means... By the skin of their teeth. You know, thank God. Jesus saved them, not because of what they did, but because of what he did. So there will be people that you look at their life and you go, I don't see a lot coming out of your life. That'll still be born again. Ultimately, God's the judge, right? But it does say, he's telling them, look at those teachers that you're listening to. And look at their lives. 
And look at what they're telling you to do. They're telling you, go out and do whatever feels good. Go out and do this. And he says, those guys aren't of God. Because you know what? The person that continually will, lives in willful rebellion against God is proving who they're from. And that's not a godly characteristic. So he says, it's not, it doesn't pass the test. But I want you to see something because I want to, I want to just stay for a moment on that wonderful verse. First of all, that Jesus appeared to take away sin. And then it says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Those two go together, but they're also separate thoughts. And I want, I want to explain that for a minute. We all know that we're sitting here today and we're alive because Jesus paid for our sin. He paid the price. And I don't have to pay what's already been paid. In fact, it's blasphemy to say that I should or I will. He's paid it. I can't repay it. It's paid. For me to be tried again is double jeopardy. It's not going to happen. However, here's the other part. He paid the penalty of my sin, but he also came to completely break the chains of that sin. So that I know I don't have to pay for that sin, but I also know I don't have to keep doing that thing anymore. I can be free. I can be so free that you can't even find remnants of those chains anymore, that they are just pulverized under the power of God. Now, there are folks here, some of you are here right now, that you're still saying, I am fighting the fight. I want to tell you that's not evident. The fact that you are fighting against that is not evidence that you're not saved. Rather, it's evidence that you are. Because you recognize it's not of God and you stand and you're resisting the devil. And I want to tell you that's evidence in you. The fact that it doesn't feel good. The fact that it doesn't feel right. That's evidence in you you're born again. Resist the devil, he will flee. But I also want to tell you, don't buy into a thought that you have to struggle with this sin or these habits or these things for the rest of your life, that it'll always be an issue. I know there are things that pop up and keep popping up, but I want to tell you, I want to build your hope and your faith today that Jesus is able and willing to completely break those chains in your life, if you'll let him. Sometimes it's instant, sometimes it is a process, but every time he will do what he says he came to do. I want us to go back to the familiar Luke chapter 4. And it's familiar for a reason because it's the foundation of Jesus' ministry on earth. When he said in Luke 4, this is what I'm here to do, he was announcing not only to people but to the powers in the spiritual realm and the heavenly realm. He was announcing, here's why I'm here. This is why I'm here. Get ready. You know, after he did that, I believe he announced those same things in every village he went. Because in every village he went, people heard and they brought their sick to them and they brought their demon possessed and they brought the people who were oppressed. They came to him. The reason they came to him is because he proclaimed, this is why I'm here. Now, once he proclaimed it, it was their job to respond to it. Right? We know that Jesus didn't go door to door yanking people out of bed and saying, I want to pray for you. The only time he went to people's house is when somebody came and got him and said, my daughter's dead. She can't come. Other than that, people are bringing, they're sick, they're hurting, they're possessed, they're oppressed. They're bringing people to him. How do they know? Well, they might have heard chatter from other village, but the main reason they knew is because the Bible tells us that everywhere he went, he preached. He proclaimed, here's what I'm here to do. Just like he did in Luke 4. If you look right after Luke 4, after he proclaims this, you see people started bringing their sick to him. Why? 
Because he said, I'm here to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. So people start bringing blind people. I'm here to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. I'm here to set free those that are oppressed by the devil, to proclaim the favorable of your Lord, to preach the gospel to the poor. This is what I'm here to do. People came to him because he said, here I am. He announced it. And it shook things up when he did. In Luke chapter 4, right after, I mean, can, oh, can you imagine? This, this, this is huge point in history. Luke 4 starts out with Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit and going into the wilderness, fasting and praying and being tempted by the devil. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that he was tempted in everything that we've ever been tempted with, he was tempted with. Now, I don't know if it all happened in those 40 days, but I can imagine easily that it could. You might say, well, Jesus, Jesus hasn't had to, he didn't have to face the same things I have to face now in 2014. He didn't have to face those back then. I'll tell you that every sin, no matter what kind of modern wrapper you put on it, every temptation has its root in a much deeper thing. So it doesn't matter whether you sin over the internet, it's still the same sin that Jesus fought and conquered, right? It's not, it's not unique. And that's good news because the Bible says, when, when it says that, it says we have a high priest who is not unsympathetic with our weaknesses. He knows your weakness. He knows what you're tempted with. He's been tempted with the same thing and yet without sin. Why is that important? Because it's saying he went through what you're going through. He knows what you're going through, but he beat it. Who better to go to? Listen, guys, if you're going to go to advice, if you're struggling with something, you want to go to somebody for advice. Sometimes it's helpful to talk to somebody who's been through it, right? I find as helpful as it is sometimes to talk to somebody who's going through the same thing at that moment, that ultimately has its limits because they're still fighting what you're fighting. They haven't got out of it either. It's helpful to know you're not alone. They're still fighting it. What's even more helpful sometimes is to go to somebody who's been through it but beat it. Because they can tell you what they did. And they can tell you there's light at the end of the tunnel. And they can tell you don't give up. And so Jesus did not just go through what you're going through. He conquered what you're going through. And it says this in Luke chapter 4. He says, in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. So here's what the spirit of God came on Jesus to do. To preach the gospel to the poor. Praise God. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. See, in all of this, he just lays out what the enemy has done. He lays out what the devil has done in Nazareth, in Galilee, in Judea, in the planet. He lays it out and says, here's what the enemy's done. And I, piece by piece, am going to demolish his kingdom. I'm, gonna, I'm going to completely just pulverize his work. 
So for every person that he has kept under his thumb and oppressed, I'm going to break that oppression. For every person he's thrown in prison, I am going to smash those gates wide open. For everybody that's got chains, I'm going to break them. For everybody that's blind, I'm going to cause them to see again. For everybody who has been so trapped under poverty that they don't think they're worthy of God, I am going to proclaim the gospel to them. And I'm going to proclaim to everybody who is in debt to in debt by the flesh to God in debt and think that they can never live it off that they've sinned too much I am going to proclaim to them this is the favorable year of the Lord this is the year of jubilee where debts go free he says this is what I'm coming to do and he lived up to his word he didn't just say it he did it for this purpose he has appeared to destroy the works of the devil that's not mild language. On the New American Standard, sometimes I get teased for reading from it because it's a very, it's, it's scholarly in some senses. It's not, it's not the adventure Bible. There are times where it's just kind of dry. But even in that, that's not mild language. This is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. Not to mitigate, not to minimize, not to put a, 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 some sort of balm over the wound, but to destroy it. Now, I want to ask you a question. From reading what we read in 1 John, are you asking God to help you cope with the works of the devil in your life? Or are you expecting God to working through his spirit and working in you to destroy the work of the devil in your life? Are we expecting to somehow just become a little bit better versions of ourselves and just somehow live life struggling place by place, just, just trying not to be too bad, but, but also realizing we can't be too good? Or are we expecting that while we are works in progress, while we're not finished, while we will continue to be perfected until the day of Jesus, that there are things in my life I just simply can't tolerate? I can't just live life saying, it's okay, I'll deal with this all my life. I have to, at some point, confront it and say, if this is a work of the devil, Jesus came to destroy it. And I know, I'm not going to get discouraged if day number two, I still don't see what I think I should have seen. I'm going to stand in faith and know, hey, I might fight this for a while. I might fight this for 30 seconds. I might fight it for a year. I might fight it for longer, but I know it has no place in my life. And that's got to, we gotta, we gotta quit being so, you know, navel gazers that just kind of spend hours and hours of self-examination and self-loathing, and just look at ourselves and go, oh, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be like this, because maybe, you know what? And start looking at Jesus, for real. Can I just be honest about that? Sometimes as Christians, we have made it an art form to look at ourselves and be poetic about it and just look at this and, oh, maybe this is, uh, uh. and you know what? We've lost the beauty and the power of looking at him, the author and perfecter of our faith. <laughs> I've sat at tables with Christians and, and, and we're talking about, oh, but maybe we have to do this, maybe this is this, and, and, and we, we're just moaning about life and, oh, but maybe it's good and we're trying to find something. And, and you know what? Let's just stop looking at us for a minute and let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. 
Because he's the one we're meant to be looking at. Stop being so self-obsessed. Let's look at him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's look at him like those kids looked at him when they ran up to him. Let's look at him. I know this doesn't make sense, but let's look at him like the blind guy looked at him. Now, I know your relationship with Jesus goes deeper than just one, just a miracle. You know, it's got to because healing your blindness physically is probably one of the smaller miracles in your life. Healing your blindness spiritually is a bigger deal. Physical miracles are wonderful, and I believe in them very strongly. Financial miracles are wonderful, and I believe in them. But bigger than that are the spiritual things that are happening. Because the physical and the material will all go away. What remains is the unseen. So I'm excited. I'm excited every time somebody who's ill gets healed. And I believe that we should always do what Jesus did. Part of the deal was recovery of sight to the blind. Every village he went to, he went healing the sick. He did not have a tolerance for it. You notice that? He didn't, he didn't seem to be okay with it. Everywhere he went, he healed all. The only time it didn't happen is when people didn't believe. That's what the Bible says. And so, so I want to be like Jesus. If he didn't have tolerance for it, I don't either. Yet, that, that, the crowds loved that. It was only the disciples that were willing to go deeper than that. You know, Lazarus, he still died eventually. You guys know that, right? He's not working at a gas station somewhere with Elvis and Tupac, you know. He died. It wasn't a permanent resurrection. His body died. But you know Lazarus is alive. Lazarus was Jesus. Lazarus' spirit lives on because he received something much greater than a physical resurrection. He received what we received which is that same spirit of Jesus Christ, that life in him, that being born again. So the bigger miracle, it's a big miracle that he came out of the grave after three days. You know what the bigger miracle is that he was born again in the spirit. But I'm telling you, whether whether it's something on the surface or whether it's something much deeper, for this purpose, this is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. And I want us to be to the place. Remember, let's look at that in context. In the context of when he said it, he's talking about people that say, I will always continue. I will always be a sinner. I will always continue. That's just the way the body works. I'm just always going to fall back into those things. And he says, no. This is why Jesus came. First of all, he came to take away your sin. So you don't have to pay that price. And secondly, he came to destroy it. So that every chain that's been on you, where you were a slave to that thing, you are no longer a slave to that thing. You are free. Now, I I know when we think of people that were oppressed by the devil, we often think of the people that were like shaking and gyrating and that had demons cast out of them, right? But uh, there were some ladies, for instance, following Jesus that I don't think showed the same signs. Now, maybe they did, but I, they might not have had a demon that was trying to throw them in the fire, but they had demons that were controlling them. There was one lady that was financially supporting Jesus, following him everywhere, who had seven demons cast out of her. Man. 
But no matter whether or not they were possessed by an evil spirit, all of them were oppressed by the devil. They were oppressed. Now, so when we think of oppressed, we're thinking of somebody that's just like being controlled or somebody. But really, oppression comes in many different forms. And I think for most of them, they just simply were so stuck in the, in the curse. They were so stuck in their sin. And Jesus said to them, you guys don't know that without me, you will die in your sin. He said that to the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't frothing at the mouth and, 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 and shaking on the ground, but they were just as oppressed. He says, don't you realize if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sin. And your sin has been so whitewashed that you don't know it's sin anymore. You think you're so perfect, but you are tombs that are painted white on the outside, but are dead on the inside. He says, don't you know, here's the thing, that when Jesus says that, he doesn't say it to, to, to embarrass them. He doesn't say it to condemn them. He says it to save them so that if they could just recognize, he goes, here I am. I'm here for you too. I'm not just there for that lady. I'm not just there for that kid. I'm here for you Pharisees as well. If you'll just break your pride and say, I need you, here I am. If you believe in me, you won't die. You'll live. I offer you life. And believers, I'm telling you today, I think almost everybody in the room is born again. And I want you to know you have eternal life. I don't want you to question it every other day. I want you to know you have eternal life. But now that you know you have eternal life, I want you to know you can, and you can be free and you can stay free. Jesus came. To destroy the work of the devil in your life. To destroy the work of the devil in your family. To destroy the work of the devil in our city. To destroy the work of the devil. I mean, you you might say, well, that's not up to me. It's up to people. It is up to them. God gave them free will. And yet, when Jesus walked Galilee, I guarantee there were evil spirits that were uncomfortable that he was just there. Right? Right? I mean, because when he crossed the sea, they were real uncomfortable. They said, what are you doing here? Why are you bugging us? Can I just address something real quick? This is just a bracket. Just for a minute, just a little parentheses. You might hear people today that say, well, that was superstition back then. They just thought that somebody who had epilepsy, for instance, had an evil spirit. You know, I believe... There are probably people in Bible times that had epilepsy, and there are probably people in Bible times that had an evil spirit that masqueraded as epilepsy. I believe Jesus healed them both. I don't believe every time somebody had epilepsy it was an evil spirit. But it was a work. It was a work that Jesus came to destroy. It was Jesus healed them. There were times where Jesus cast an unclean spirit out of somebody, and there were other times where he simply healed them. Not everybody who has a disease has a spirit. In fact, most of them don't. Most of the time, that's just a result of the, of the, of the curse-filled earth that we live in, where things go wrong, things are broken, things aren't as they should be. Creation is groaning, and yet Jesus came to heal these people. At the same time, don't buy into the theory that it was just superstition that said that was a demon. You know why? Because when Jesus cast the demon out, they got better. To me, that's proof. So we said, oh, it wasn't really a demon. We scientifically know what really was going on. Then you have to explain to me why when Jesus cast an evil spirit out, that person got better. That's either just major coincidence 
or he knows more than you knew. There's scientific reasons for things. There's medical reasons for things. And yet there's also spiritual reasons for things. So not everybody that Jesus healed had a spirit. Some did, some didn't. He was discerning enough to know the difference. But either way, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So he came both to give recovery sight to the blind and to break the chains of those who were oppressed and release the captives. Now, let's bring it home for a minute. I want you to know, once again, I want you to know you're born again. I want you to know you have eternal life. But I, I think some of us, if we allow ourselves, get comfortable with the way things are. Now, I'm not talking about continually just being depressed or discouraged. I'm not saying you need to be upset at the rate things are going. I, I don't, I'm not talking about being discontent all the time. But I am saying there are times where you get comfortable with certain habits and patterns in your life because you just think that's the way you are. Or you think that's something you'll always have to struggle with. But I want to tell you that, that Jesus came to pulverize the work of the devil in your life. So if you are still clinging to these things, you can be free. If you are still struggling with these things, you can be free. For this purpose, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is about him coming to take away sin, but it's also him coming to destroy the power of sin in your life. He came to take the penalty, but he also came to destroy the power. And as children of God, you have certain rights. You have a right as a child of God to be every day made more and more like your father. You have a right not to be bound and chained to things that Jesus has already paid for and has already set you free from. There was an old Roman practice. The Romans could be sadistic when they wanted to be. They didn't do this all the time, but it wasn't just the Romans. Sometimes it was some of the barbarians surrounding. There was an old practice in those times of binding a, um, a captive on the battlefield, of, of chaining them up to a corpse, mouth to mouth, nose to nose, binding them together so that slowly that prisoner, that wounded warrior would die inhaling the fumes of death. It would be a slow death, and they might not always die from the same thing, but they'd be left on the battlefield mouth to mouth with the corpse. And the, the Bible talks about this when Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? When you read that in Romans, in Romans 7, some people have stopped at Romans 7 and said, I will always do the things I hate to do. But you have to keep reading. So he says, thanks be to God. And he goes on in Romans 8 to your victory in the Spirit. That you, though your body and though your flesh may resist, that ultimately you are not slaves to the flesh, but you are slaves to the Spirit of God.
And thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumph. We are not going to remain in the old patterns and habits that we've always been stuck in. You are not a sinner anymore. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace. That's not your identity anymore. You are now a saint. The Bible never calls you a sinner in the New Testament after you've been born again. The only time it's even hinted at is when Paul says, of the sinners, I'm chief among them. And what he's saying is, I'm the record holder. If you're looking for somebody that was bad, look at me. I hold the record. But you know, every place in the New Testament that it talks about believers, as messed up as they are, he calls them saints, holy ones. That's your identity. And anything that doesn't line up with that identity is not of God. Anything that doesn't line up with that identity, you resist it until it's gone. Anything that doesn't line up with that identity, you say, it doesn't match me. It doesn't fit me. It's not me. Now, I know I've I've been stuck in this. I've been repeating the same things, but I will and I am free. When he says that, that you are a saint, when he says you're righteous, you know, James goes on and says that anyone who continues in some of these things is, is like a man. He says anybody that hears the word and doesn't do it is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then looks away and immediately forgets who he is. He forgets what kind of person he is. That's why the word of God is a mirror for us. Your identity can't be shaped by what people tell you about you. Your identity can't be shaped by your best thoughts about yourself. Your identity can't be shaped by your memories or experiences. Your identity must be shaped by looking in the mirror. And the mirror is his word. That's who you really are. The problem is, and this is why we still struggle with stuff. Now, until Jesus comes back, there'll be things that you struggle. There'll be things that you fight. There'll be things that you resist. But here's why some people just have never gotten free from certain things. Because they look at the mirror, and then they look away, and they forget who they are. You're not that person. You're this person. You're not the sinner anymore. You're the saint. You see, we like to be poetic. Ooh, ooh, we live in the tension of sinner and saint. It sounds good, makes a good song, but I get that there's tension. Don't glory in the tension. Glory in the victory of Jesus Christ. Look at him. Quit looking at you and writing songs about it. And start looking at him and write songs about that. You know what I mean? When I don't feel like I'm free, I look at him. When I don't feel like I'm free, I look at his word and I say, it it says I am free, so I'm going to act free. I'm going to call myself free. I'm going to talk like I'm free. And I'm going to continue to fight like a free person. I'm not going to bow like a slave. I'm not going to submit like a slave. I'm not going to submit and bow down to this thing that keeps on attacking my life. You know, the Bible calls it the things, the lusts of the flesh that wage war against your soul. If it's waging war against your soul, don't make friends with it. Don't say, "Mm, it's part of my life. No. It's something that you have to fight. And you fight it because it's not there. It's not of you. It's like your body has antibodies and it attacks. You know, your white blood says attack things that shouldn't be there. 
Your body identifies a foreign body and it says, this isn't right. This shouldn't be here. This infection is not supposed to be here. I will fight it until it's gone. And this is the way you have to look at your life. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So if there are works of the enemy still in my life, I am not going to get discouraged because they're there. I'm not going to get depressed because they're there. I'm not going to be condemned because they're there. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm a bad person. But I am going to say, I will not rest with this here. I am going to fight. I'm going to resist. And I am going to rest. I will rest in the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. I will glory in the cross. I will glory in the resurrection and I will say Jesus came to pulverize the works of the devil. So as long as I still see his works, I will fight it like he fought it. See, all he's asked us to do is be like him. All he's asked to do is is to be like him. You watch. Just, Just look at the gospels. Can we just do that? Because when you look at the gospels, you look at Jesus, he says, if you look at me, you see God. You've seen the Father. So if we argue about the nature of God, can we at least settle on the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And you look at Jesus, you know what God likes and what God doesn't like. And you know what he tolerates and what he doesn't tolerate. And you know what he says every time he encounters somebody that was sick and, and, and oppressed. And every time he, he encountered somebody that was possessed by evil spirits. And every time he encountered somebody that was bound by sin. And every time he encountered somebody that was so stuck in their pride that they couldn't be free. Every time he encountered these people, he spoke freedom. He ministered freedom to them. By that, you see the heart of God. And you can see the heart of God for you in Jesus. Let's look at Christmas and say, for this reason, that baby was born. To take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And he is still, the the devil's works have been just utterly decimated, just destroyed. Yet there's remnants still around, right? The world's not perfect yet, but Jesus is still Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Stop making friends with things he says I came to destroy. Don't, don't name it. Don't, don't pet it. Don't give it a, a feeding bowl in your kitchen. Get rid of it. And if, it, if it's something you're still fighting, don't be condemned that you're fighting it. Rejoice that there's something in you that says, I will fight this until it's gone. That's evidence that there is a spirit in you that is not willing to submit to that. I applaud you for fighting, but know this. You have victory in Jesus Christ. You will not fight for the rest of your life. You can be free. So let's stand up together.